For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. This is John Castanet, and I welcome you to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. Yesterday, when we did the podcast, we began with John's vision of Christ in the midst of the seven candlesticks, and there was a symbolic description of the glorified Christ from head to foot, and we're going to continue that discussion today of the same vision, only this is going to be Revelation 1, verses 16 through 18, and in these verses... The vision continues with Christ holding seven stars in his hand and describes other attributes of the Savior. And amazed John falls down when he sees the glorified Christ as if dead, and then he's lifted back to life by Christ who holds the keys of death and hell. So these are the, the topics that we're essentially going to be covering in today's podcast. This corresponds to section 11 in my book if you happen to have it and you can kind of read ahead or uh, follow along a little bit. So let's go ahead and we're going to jump right in both feet first talking about Revelation 1.16 which states, quote, and he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength." Close quote. Let's focus first of all on the glorified Christ who symbolically has in his right hand these seven stars, specifically on the seven stars. First of all, the word star in Hebrew comes from kokab, which means round or shining. And people are often represented by stars or planets. So, for example, in Job 38, we have the premortal spirits who shouted for joy at the time of the physical creation of this earth, and they were called morning stars. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it describes this star that comes forth from Jacob, which actually is an identification of King David and also the Savior. In Genesis 37.9, you'll remember that Joseph had a dream where the sun, moon, and 11 stars made obeisance to Joseph, and those 11 stars in that dream represented his brothers. And so stars can represent a number of things with regard to people and individuals, but it essentially also pertains to princes, rulers, nobles of the earth. These are all very common images in the uh, book of Revelation and elsewhere in the scriptures. Now, we have the benefit of having Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, which actually tells us the meaning of these seven stars and describes them as the angels of the seven churches. Now, we're helped further by the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1.20, which gives us some more insight into the word angels, which in that verse is changed to the word servants. So let me share with you uh, Revelation 1.20 in the Joseph Smith translation, which states, quote, This is the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. 
the seven stars are the servants of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches close quote so from the Joseph Smith translation, we know that the seven stars are the local leaders in the seven churches, meaning these are men who are still then living at the time of the revelation received by John. Today we would call them the bishop or the branch president in each of the seven churches. Now, this view is not limited to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For example, Adam Clark, who uh, is a well-known British theologian from the Methodist Church who lived from 1762 to 1832 shares the same opinion and he interpreted the seven angels as the bishops of the seven churches and, and the reason he did so principally was because the Greek word that is translated as angels in Revelation 120 is elsewhere translated as messengers in other words mortal men who are messengers of some type or another this we find in uh, luke chapter 7 and in that chapter we find that g john the baptist had sent some messengers to inquire of christ whether christ was the long-awaited messiah and so in verse uh, 24 of that chapter it says quote and when the messengers of John were departed, Christ began to speak unto the people concerning John. Now the word messengers in this verse that John sent to Jesus to make their inquiry is the same Greek word that is used in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 that is there translated as the word angels. It's the only two places that this same word appears in Greek in the New Testament, and one of them is translated as messengers, the other is translated as angels. But the bottom line is, the word in Greek can mean mortal messengers, and in the case of uh, Revelation 1.20, that's the way the word should have been translated. So Joseph Smith was uh, correcting the uh, revelation to correctly reflect that the seven angels are actually seven mortal ministers who presided or led the seven churches of Asia. So what we know uh, through Joseph Smith and other means is that the seven leaders of the church as of 96 AD were represented by these seven stars. And we know that it was at, as of 96 AD because that's the time period in which John received the revelation. And so you have uh, in the next couple of chapters that we're going to be looking at, John is addressing letters to each of these seven churches to the bishops who are leading these churches and it must have been quite a interesting thing um, and I you know it's kind of hard to imagine what their feelings must have been like but here you are you're one of the leaders of the church you get a letter from John one of the seven in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation and you know you're the bishop and you start reading this verse in Revelation 116 that describes the fact that the Savior has in his hand these seven stars, which they certainly would have understood to be a reflection or symbol of them as the leaders of the church. It's, it just kind of strikes me that, wow, what an interesting feeling that must have been like, getting a letter from John the Apostle and uh, talking about you as one of the stars that were in the, hand, in the right hand of Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit more about this phrase, 
that he has the these seven stars in his right hand and uh, as we talk about this uh, we have to recognize that the uh, the meaning of this is several fold first the seven stars given the fact that they're in the right hand of god uh, or jesus christ they don't speak or act for themselves they represent their master the fact that he's holding them in his hands means they belong to him and to have denotes possession so if you compare that for example with uh, what we find in what i call the sheep chapter of the new testament which is john chapter 10 we get lots of discussion about sheep of all kinds and uh, in john chapter 10 verses 27 and 28 it says this quote my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand close quote so you see that same imagery uh, here in revelation 1 16 and again in john chapter 10 where the savior has these seven leaders in his hand and we learn in revelation or in john chapter 10 that essentially no one is going to have the power to take them from the possession of Jesus Christ and out of his hand. So, you know, all considered, that's really not too bad. <laughs> you have to forgive me. Anytime sheep come into the conversation, we've got to say something that is some kind of a sheep goat. Uh, and so at any rate, the, the seven leaders of the church are essentially in the favored right hand of power. And so it's not just that Christ holds them in his hand, it is his right hand of power. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith said this with regard to uh, this uh, <clears throat> idea of the right hand. He said, quote, showing favor to the right hand or side is not something invented by man, but was revealed from heavens in the beginning. There are numerous passages in the scripture referring to the right hand, indicating that it is a symbol of righteousness and was used in the making of covenants. And so we see illustrations of what uh, Joseph uh, Fielding Smith said if we look first at Acts chapter 7, verse 56, where it said, And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. In Matthew 26, 64, it says likewise, quote, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so what we learn from these scriptures in the statement of President Smith is that Jesus supported, he upheld, he protected, and he preserved the seven leaders of the churches in Asia Minor because the seven leaders are, quote, in, close quote, his right hand. But in Revelation 120, where it's describing essentially the meaning of these seven stars back in verse 16, the preposition is actually changed in the Greek. So it doesn't say that the Savior had them in his right hand, but instead it says he had these seven stars upon his right hand. And so the idea of the word in suggests that there's some type of retention, whereas the word upon suggests support. And so what essentially you get from the meaning in verse 20 is that Christ supports, he upholds 
the leaders of his church then, just as he upholds them today. Let me share with you a quote from uh, Virginia U. Jensen from the uh, October 1998 General Conference. She said, quote, Prophets ancient and modern were and are giants of the Lord, chosen and ordained before they came to this earth. Our prophets are men whom the Lord has raised up specifically to preside over the church for the particular time in which they have served. The Lord is working through the leaders of his church today, just as he always done in the past. Close quote. <clears throat> so essentially what we have here, uh, again, is a description in symbolic terms of how the Savior supports his leaders um, and uh, it, it reminds me a little bit about an interview that President Hinckley gave to Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes some years ago. And I remember President Hinckley, after he did with the interview with Mike Wallace, spoke about it in general conference, but the 60 Minutes interview hadn't actually aired on 60 Minutes. So President Hinckley had had the interview but didn't know what, what what Mike Wallace was ultimately going to say and what they would portray him as on 60 Minutes. And so he was a little bit concerned about that, and he kind of talked about it. Hey, if it turns out bad, I'm never going to set my foot in that bear trap again. <laughs> and that, that's a paraphrase, but that's pretty close to what he said. But one of the things that... Uh, uh, Mike Wallace asked President Hinckley during the during the interview was he he basically kind of couched it like uh, hey you got this bunch of old men running the church uh, and and he was kind of putting it forth as it's it's kind of a criticism that exists at the community at large that all these old men are running the church and as soon as uh, Mike Wallace says these old men running the church President Hinckley jumped right in and didn't hardly even let him finish the sentence and I and said and this is what President Hinckley said quote I know isn't it wonderful <laughs> close quote so at any rate um, I think about that as I think about the Savior supporting and having the leaders of the church in his hand, which he does today. You think about President Nelson, he's 99 years and going strong. And, uh, you know, this is just me kind of talking, but if the Lord has the leaders in and on his right hand, seems to me like it might be a pretty good idea to support and sustain them. And so uh, that's just me on my little bit of a soapbox there, but uh, I think that's the lesson to be taken from this imagery that the Lord has the leaders of his church in and on his right hand of power. And uh, you have to keep in mind also that uh, at this particular time in 96 AD, even though the Savior is saying, I have these leaders in and on my right hand, <clears throat> the reality is that the churches themselves were not doing particularly well. There was evidence of apostasy and progress as described in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and a lot of reproof by the Lord of these. And we got plenty of time to discuss these in the, uh, the future, but I think the message that is being conveyed, of course, is not only to conditions that existed in the ancient church, but the seven churches represent the universal church. That's the, the magic of the symbolic number seven, including the modern church. So for those who are concerned about the direction of the uh, church today, um, 
you don't need to question whether the Lord still holds uh, his leaders in, in and on his right hand. And uh, there's need to wonder if detractors are in and on the Lord's right hand. So you kind of have to ask yourself, who's on the Lord's side who? And in, the answer to that question is found in Joshua 24, 15, where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so essentially what you find here is in this imagery, the seven stars or leaders who are in the right hand of God or Jesus Christ, they're like this flickering light in the growing night of apostasy that was growing in uh, 96 AD in a very serious way. And as we see things even today, uh, people uh, criticizing and, and saying things against church leaders and engaging in some type of personal apostasy. Again, these, these seven stars represent the leaders who are these lights in a growing night of personal apostasy among some people. It's a, a sad commentary, but I think that that is uh, fairly and truly reflected in this particular verse in the book of Revelation. Now the next phrase that we want to look at is the one that says in still in Revelation 1:16 where we learn that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So we want to talk about what that imagery actually means. Now, keeping in mind of course that you've got this image of this two-edged sword means that it's sharp on both sides of the sword, front and back. It has a double efficiency and also has a dual meaning that it has the ability to condemn going one direction while converting others on the on the going the other way. You can both cause destruction, uh, but you can all use it, use it as a source of blessing for others. Now, the there are two Greek words that are translated as sword in the King James version of the Bible. The first is uh, machaya which is more specific to a knife, such as a butcher or a surgeon would use. The other, which is used here, is romphaya, which is a broad sword or lance or spear that has a double-edged head. So, uh, as I said, there's only two uses of this Greek word in the New Testament, the, uh, the second version, the romphaya, um, the other is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. This is part, if you recognize Luke 2, you say, oh, the nativity story, and that's exactly right. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 35, Mary was told, quote, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, close quote. And so when uh, it was told to Mary how this sword would pierce through her because of the, uh, the trials and challenges of the Savior that would come in the future, it used the same sword or Greek word that is in use here in Revelation chapter 16. And so this is descriptive of the type of swords that were used by the Roman soldiers at that time. Now, figuratively, what we have is a figurative representation. In other words, there is not a literal sword that is coming out of the Savior's mouth. And this is consistent, this type of symbolism is consistent with the apocalyptic genre 
of the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic uh, scriptures that have this fantastic imagery and stuff like this. So uh, don't think that this is a, a literal representation. The sword is essentially a symbol of divine chastisement and the word of God is likened unto a sword and that's why it's coming out of the mouth because that's where words come from. And so uh, even though we're suggesting or I'm suggesting that the sword is a figurative representation of the Word of God. It's also uh, something that has very real-life uh, results. And so let me quote to you from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, which says, quote, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And talking a little bit further along these same lines, again in the book of Revelation, the symbolism can be found in Revelation 19.15, which says, quote, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Close quote. So again, these very symbolic images that depict the word of God coming forth from the mouth of Christ uh, have very real-world consequences for those who fail to repent and the wicked nations, particularly at the time of the second coming, that will feel the full wrath of this sword as it destroys them in a very literal way. So this sword can be a symbol of war, of slaughter, of divine judgment, physical power, and authority. And so these kind of destructive judgments are going to be carried out according to the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And this we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which states, quote, For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Close quote. And in Doctrine and Covenants, you, you similarly find in, in section 33, verse 1, it says the word of God is, quote, quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Now, this imagery alludes to what we find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, which says, quote, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Close quote. Now, in the Septuagint, which uh, is the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew, and so in that particular version of the Old Testament, it replaces the word rod with the word word, which is consistent with what we've been seeing in all of these other verses as well. And just one other point let me make about the Septuagint. Um, it, it was written or translated into the Greek language because there was a large Jewish community in Egypt at the time that it was translated, and it's called the LXX, Roman numeral 70, and sometimes called the translation of the 70, 
because the tradition is that uh, it was translated from Hebrew into the Greek language. And so that's just a little tidbit on the uh, Septuagint and its origins, and we'll probably refer to it every now and then. Okay, now let's talk about this concept of the two-edged sword. So we've talked a little bit about the sword itself. Let's get into a little bit more detail on the two edges. And so this is something that has the power to both wound and heal. It strikes at sin on the right hand and on the left. And because God's word is extremely powerful, it's able to pierce the very soul. And so this double-edged sword of judgment is found six times in the book of Revelation and much more frequently in the Old Testament. We also find references to this same sword being bathed in heaven with blood. This is a reference that you can find in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants in verse 13. Now, the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, of course, is kind of the preface to the entire book of the Doctrine and Covenants. So right there in the preface, preface one of the first things it starts to talk about is Christ's sword for us in the latter days being bathed in heaven. And so what this essentially means is that the sword is made bare or ready for an immense slaughter of the wicked. It's similar to the concept that it shall be bathed, which is a Hebrew word meaning well-soaked or glutted with blood. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32:42, we find a related image of how uh, there is this intoxication with blood from this sword that is going to bring destruction among the wicked. So there's just some additional information uh, for you on this concept of the two-edged sword. Now, let's turn our attention to the concept that the countenance that John observed in the Savior was as the sun shineth in his strength. And so the sun, of course, in, in its brightest summer day at noon with no clouds is kind of the vision you should have of what the countenance of the Savior must look at. So we're not talking here about uh, the eclipse <laughs> like we had last summer here in the southern Utah area um, where, you know, is the sun starts slowly going behind the moon and it starts getting dark. Okay, we're talking about uh, the noonday sun, no eclipse. And uh, so this description that uh, Christ's countenance is as the sun that shineth in his strength, we find similar imagery from Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, which is a description of the transfiguration of Christ on the mount. And it says, quote, And Christ was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Close quote. So that's kind of a, a shared image there that we also see here in the book of Revelation. Now, the light of the seven stars in his right hand, if we compare that with the image of Christ's countenance, these stars are very dim by comparison to uh, the glorified countenance that we see in Christ. And you have to keep in mind, of course, that Christ is the ultimate source of light. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it describes him as the light which is in all things, which giveth light to all things, which is the law by which they are governed. And this re is referring, of course, to the light of Christ. And he ultimately 
possesses the glory of the Father. So the ultimate source of the light is the Father through Christ as the light of Christ. And uh, so it is that uh, he's brighter than uh, the noonday sun in his strength as far as his countenance is concerned. Let's go on now to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, which states, quote, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Close quote. Now here, of course, the, uh, the personal pronouns uh, refer to John. So it's essentially when John saw the Savior, John fell at the Savior's feet as though John were dead. In other words, this the imagery that he saw in verse 16 and in some of the verses that we talked about last week were so overwhelming that he was overcome and sees this, this double-edged sword. And so he essentially has this kind of this uh, fear that comes over him and he's overcome by it. Now, this is uh, totally different than the image that John had of the Savior when John knew him during Christ's mortal ministry. And you kind of got to think about that a little bit. John knew the, the gentle Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, but this person that is standing before him with the, this countenance and this image of this sword coming out of his mouth, uh, this is kind of a new experience. And so it says that John fell at his feet as dead and this kind of experience is something that is not unique in scripture so we we find that Ezekiel had a similar experience in the first chapter of his book verse 28 that says quote this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it I fell upon my face and heard a voice of one that spake close quote I always like these scriptures that say they fall on their face I mean, we understand what that really kind of means, but just it, it almost sounds kind of painful to me. You know, they fall on their face and get at any rate. So we also have the same uh, effect on Daniel when Gabriel appeared to him in Daniel chapter eight seventeen, where it says that this angel Gabriel came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. In other words, he did a face plant. <laughs> so then you have also... In, in the Book of Mormon, in Jacob chapter 7, verse 21, we learn that this entire multitude was overcome and fell to the earth when the Antichrist, Sherem, was cursed and he says on his deathbed, he kind of makes this confession and all of a sudden, all of his uh, followers, uh, the fear comes over them and plop, <laughs> over they go. Similarly, in, in Alma chapter 18, where Ammon was expounding all things to the Lamanite king Lamoni. And uh, when he hears and, and feels the power of the spirit of Ammon's words, over he goes as if dead. And uh, eventually King Lamoni's entire household was prostrate on the earth as though they were all dead. So again, what we see here in the book of Revelation with regard to John kind of just keeling over um, because of the shock of the appearance of the Savior is not by any means unique to the book of Revelation. And so once John falls, now it's interesting to note that it doesn't say that he just kind of fell on his face and fainted. It, the word dead is used in the verse. So he falls at the feet of the Savior, quote, as dead, close quote. Now I think that's important 
to the imagery of what we're about to see happens here in the life of John because when John is then lying there as though he were dead, Christ then laid his right hand upon him. And so uh, to me, this has a lot of very spiritual insights because the hymn, of course, is John, the fallen disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, and uh, this is John the Beloved. And it's the Savior reaching down to his friend and raising him up. And so the, the appellation that uh, Jesus uh, had John as his beloved disciple is more tender than just calling him. And he raised John up. He raised him up, this appellation of uh, John the Beloved. And so when we think about the, the hand that is used to raise John, it's just it's specific to the right hand, which is the covenant hand. And so we have to remember the covenant relationship that we have with the Lord that means we sustain him as we keep our covenants. And as we do so, then he will comfort us and support us. He will then raise us up by his right hand. And so you begin to get a sense of what we're talking about with this imagery that someone who is dead being raised by the right hand of power by the Savior. And as the Savior is doing this, he's saying to John, fear not. And so it, it's kind of like John probably is having a little bit of a deja vu moment back to the Mount of Transfiguration where John was one of the three apostles who were present at that time. In Matthew 17, 6 through 7, it says, quote, And when the disciples heard it, including John, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. Close quote. So we have in the life of John, history repeating itself, where John was so overwhelmed by the transfiguration of the Savior on the Mount of Transfiguration, that he, along with Peter and James, fell on their face in fear, and it was Jesus who came and raised them using the same words that he's now using here in Revelation 1.17, to raise John up. And so what we learn from this is that the hand and the voice of Christ restores John from this death-like condition. That's why I emphasize the presence of the word dead in the scripture because this raising is a, a microcosm or a type for the resurrection. And if you go back to the Bread of Life sermon that you find in John chapter 6, there are three verses that use the same phraseology three times. And it says, you know, the, the concept is you eat the Bread of Life, and as you do so, then you can gain eternal life. And the three phrases are, quote, I will raise him up at the last day. Close quote. So this is Jesus giving the Sermon on the Bread of Life, saying those who partake of it, Christ will raise them up at the last day. And he repeats it three times for emphasis. And so this leads into a discussion about really the, the resurrection, which is being portrayed here in this imagery of John who has fallen like he's dead, 
uh, and Christ raising him up. Now compare this with the, uh, the imagery of the two witnesses who minister in Jerusalem during the last three and a half years before the Savior's second coming. And after a three and a half year ministry, they're killed and their dead bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem unburied. And after the three and a half days, they're going to be resurrected. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 12, quote, And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Close quote. So again, we don't have Christ reaching down to, to lift them up, but we hear the voice of the Savior calling his two witnesses to be resurrected and to come up hither. And that's the beginning of the resurrection uh, in, the, in the morning of the first resurrection at the time of the second coming. That's what initiates that. And so what we're seeing is this foreshadow and this type for the future coming of the resurrection at the time of Christ's second coming. Now, if we go back and uh, think about 60 years earlier, when John was one of the Savior's uh, disciples and one of the 12 apostles, he had on many occasions seen the Savior uh, touch people and heal them. And so we, we have illustrations of this. When he would touch lepers, he would touch the deaf, he would touch the blind, and they would be healed. He touched the mother-in-law of Peter, and she was healed. He touched the ear of Malchus, uh, who's the guy at the Garden of Gethsemane, who was one that was part of the arresting party when they came to take Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, and, uh, and Peter uh, cut off his ear, <laughs> and the Savior takes the ear, and, and touches him and restores the ear, the ear once again. And this we learn in, uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 56. It says, quote, And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. And so the, these are all illustrations of the power of the master's touch to heal that John was very much familiar with from the time that he went and traveled with Christ during his mortal ministry. Now, one last incident. We will recall the account of uh, Peter walking on the water. Remember, the, the seas were very tumultuous, and the disciples in the boat saw the Savior walking on the water, and, and Peter asked the Savior if he could come to him. And so as Peter did, he started walking on the water, but then he kind of his direction or his attention was lost for a little bit and he began to sink. And so the Savior, what does he do? He reaches down and grabs Peter by the hand and pulls him up, wherefore, wherefore didst thou doubt, or some words to that effect. And so th this power of the touch and, and Christ reaching down from a heavenly spiritual level down to us mere mortals and lifting us up. That's what we get in this very touching scene here in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of, uh, of fear and, and the uh, statement that Jesus makes to John when he tells him to not fear. And this concept of fear not 
uh, is given to many people of faith throughout the scriptures. We find it uh, repeatedly stated, and one illustration of this is in Matthew chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, and it says, quote, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Close quote. So this, these words, fear not, or be not afraid, become the watchwords for faithful saints that endure trials and tribulations. Now, in the book of Revelation, and I've covered this a little bit of, in the past in the podcast that I gave last week about this concept that we're, we're galloping toward the second coming and there's going to be lots of tribulation that lies ahead. And these, the book of Revelation is filled with visions of horrible things, both temporally and spiritually. Um, and there are going to be events that can and will cause even the most stalwart among us to faint. And before they can even begin, what we're seeing is back in the time of John, this vision where John is like he's fainting out of fear, the same way we might tend to faint in the face of some of the fears that we're faced with and what we will encounter in the vision in, in the future. And yet here we have the Savior telling John to fear not. And the same would apply to us. We should not faint. And this is what we are told specifically in Doctrine and Covenants section 6, verses 34 and 35, which says, quote, Therefore, fear not, little flock, do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not, close quote. And so, the same words that were spoken to John on the occasion of his fear and fainting as he was approached by the Savior on Patmos Island are the words that apply to us today. And when we face trials, tribulations, and uh, things that would cause us to faint, uh, the words apply, uh, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Now, as we move on in verse 17, another phrase that we encounter is a statement by the Savior that says, I am the first and the last. These are the same words that were spoken in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, and again will be spoken in Revelation chapter 2, 8, and in 22, 13. So I'm not going to discuss these in any great detail now because I've already discussed them in my podcast from January 14th where I discuss Revelation verses 9 through 11, which correspond to section 9 in my book. And so essentially what we have here is a statement just by way of summary as it pertains to the context that we're now talking about. To say that Christ is the first and the last is essentially saying that Christ who was dead and is now alive would live forever. And therefore he is eternal and has power to raise others to eternal life um, as depicted in his power to raise the daughter of Jairus, who had just died. Uh, we find it illustrated in his uh, raising back to life the son of the widow of Nain, whom he restored back to life as the body was on the way to the grave. And then, of course, uh, a story that we're all familiar with is the raising of his dear friend Lazarus, who had lain dead 
for four days and had already been buried. And yet all of these things, this Savior with power in his right hand, who is the first and the last, he who was dead and is now alive and would live forever, has the power to grant life to those who are dead. And so that's all I want to talk about with regard to the first and the last at this point because I've uh, addressed it elsewhere. Now, the, uh, the statement that Christ is uh, the first and the last is essentially a name and title. Um, and it indicates that salvation is in Christ for all of creation. He has the power to give life to the first and the last of all his creations. All things from first to last were made by him and through him and all things that pertain to life and salvation whether it be past present or future all center in him and so this is described or depicted in the 76th section of the doctrine and covenants in verse 24 but it also is something that joseph smith gave some more insights into when he did his poetic rendition of the vision that is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 76, verse 24. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a slide that talks about, uh, that quotes Revelation 76, 24, and then includes Joseph Smith's poetic rendition of it to give us this concept or the context of how the Savior saves all of his creations from the beginning to the end and so it's very appropriate that he has the name first and last so putting it up it says quote and so you'll see the the doctrine and covenants verse on top and then in italics down below you'll see joseph smith's poetic renditioning and it says this and i'm quoting now verse 24 of dnc 76 quote that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. And then in the poetic version of that same verse, it says, quote, whose inhabitants too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior as ours, and of course are begotten gods, daughters, and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers, close quote. And that's another reason why Jesus Christ properly can identify himself as the first and the last, particularly as it relates to the concept of the resurrection and the power to raise all of his creations from first to last and the power to save from first to last. With that, let's move on to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 18, which says, quote, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. So as Christ raised John to conscious life, this shows his power to raise all things in the resurrection, as I have mentioned before. And now we have this additional connection that Christ is making, saying, I am he that liveth and was dead. And this is the same as this concept that Christ is alive forevermore, meaning he lives unto the ages of ages. Not merely that I live, but he is the source of life. And so it's interesting that in this verse we have three statements of his being. First, that he liveth. Second, 
and was dead. And third, he's alive forevermore. And it almost sounds like it's this chiastic pattern, liveth, dead, alive forevermore. So the, you've got these mirror images in the first and last part of the statement with the, the death in the middle. However, it's not really a chiasmus because the, ultimately the focus of this statement is not on the death at, at the midpoint of some kind of chiastic poem. And so we, this kind of illustrates the fact that in our religion and our profession of religion, we, we don't worship the cross, we don't extol the cross, we don't wear crucifixes because that's not the object of our adoration. Our worship of Jesus Christ is in his life and him being the source of life. And so, again, we, our chiasmus isn't focused on, on his death, but more on his life. And so what you have essentially in this statement where he liveth, was dead, and alive forevermore, it's really saying that he has life and death and then life more abundantly. And so it's an expression of life within himself, and therefore he's often described as the living one. This is a Hebrew title uh, that distinguishes him as the true God from all false ones. Now, the words that identify Christ as the redeemer and restorer of life is we all recognize that we have to have a redeemer because people can't raise themselves from a temporal plateau to a spiritual plane or from a lower kingdom to a higher kingdom. We need a redeemer from that, and that's what the Savior does, and that's the kind of life that he promises to give us after our death, recognizing, of course, uh, that there are going to be certain conditions attached to that in terms of where we end up. The actual resurrection itself is something that is guaranteed to everyone because of his atonement, and so everyone will be resurrected, but there is this element of conditions associated with how, what type of resurrection do you actually get? And so this is the essence of what it means for Christ to say that I am alive forevermore. And because of that, you have the ability and the power, if you will, to reach to the heights that Christ does if we live our lives in conformity with his own. In the same verse, we then find references to the fact that Christ holds the keys of hell and death. So we need to talk about that just a little bit, what that really means, because keeping in mind, first of all, that keys signify the power and authority. And in this case, it's power and authority over life, death, and the grave. So to hold keys in this realm is to be the Lord of life and death, because keys symbolize authority to control whatever it is that they're going to open. So if we talk about this power or the keys, uh, we're discussing essentially this concept of the power to save and redeem men and women from hell on conditions of repentance and obedience. And Christ governs death and hell. All people live or die at his will, and they get cast down to hell or saved therefrom by his decree. Now, hell was viewed anciently as having these kind of gates that uh, held in the inhabitants. So 
If you think about the occasion in the 16th chapter of Matthew, where the Savior was talking about giving to Peter the keys of the kingdom, you'll recall it was so that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, all right, against the kingdom of God. And so this is where these some of these symbolism and this imagery kind of overlaps. And so when we think about Christ having the keys of hell and death, it ties into this notion that hell has these symbolic figurative gates and you, you whatever is a gate you got to have a key to open it now notice also that the keys in this verse are plural so we have it's not just the key of hell and death but keys plural and so we have the the idea that he has a key that pertains to hell and death but it includes the keys of the resurrection which christ also holds now these keys uh, are of two types of death okay first you have hell which in the greek uh, would be hades uh, or in the hebrew would be sheol and essentially these words and hell in this context is referring to the world of the dead in other words the post-mortal spirit world now it's kind of interesting that in the time of the new testament the jews believed that hades had four chambers. You had one chamber for holy martyrs, which I think fairly closely equates to the concept that there is a place in the post-mortal spirit world for exaltation-worthy people. They then believed that there was one chamber for righteous people, which would pertain closely to the concept that in celestial paradise, people who were celestial-worthy would also be qualified to go into paradise. The third chamber for the Jews was of wicked people, which I think correlates closely to terrestrial and telestial people in spirit prison. So if you don't qualify for paradise, the only place you can go is spirit prison because it's only broken down into two groups. And so terrestrial and telestial people would be numbered among the wicked. And then the fourth uh, chamber among the Jewish belief was those who are willfully evil which would pertain to sons of perdition also located in the spirit in spirit prison so they their concept was not far different from the concept that we today would have in this concept of the post-mortal spirit world and in second nephi chapter 9 12 we find this reference to spiritual death which is a type of hell that eventually must deliver up these captive spirits. In other words, at some point, the keys will be exercised for captive spirits in the post-mortal spirit world to be delivered up. And uh, in this particular verse, there's a specific reference to this concept of spiritual death. So as we're talking about hell, I wanted to focus for just a moment talking about this concept of what it means when we talk about spiritual death. Essentially, it is to be cut off from the presence of God. It is not an annihilation of the spirit. So when a person spiritually dies, it means that they die as to things of righteousness or things of the spirit. For example, Adam and Eve died a spiritual death after partaking of the forbidden fruit when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and they remained in their spiritually dead condition, not temporally, but spiritually dead until they were born again of the spirit after their baptism. And so it is that the unrepentant remain spiritually dead. 
for sons of perdition that means that their spiritual death will become a permanent condition that we refer to as the second death. So in other words, when we talk about the second death, it's a little bit different than to talk about spiritual death because spirit second death is essentially spiritual death made permanent. But we can have spiritual death that is just temporary. Adam and Eve were only spiritually dead temporarily until they were baptized and received the spirit. People can be in the post-mortal spirit world in a condition of spiritual death, which is going to be cured or done away with at the time of their resurrection to some kingdom of glory. So you kind of have to distinguish between these terms when we're talking spiritual death. It's not exactly synonymous with the second death. Joseph Smith described, Joseph F. Smith described the concept of spiritual death as being banishment from the presence of God banishment from the power of God, banishment from the glory of God, banishment from the joys of heaven, banishment from all progress, banishment into outer darkness, and banishment into hell, which he referred to as the lake of fire and brimstone. So those are all the description of what you lose when you are spiritually dead at the time you enter into the post-mortal spirit world where you're on the side of prison rather than paradise because the reality of it is that for celestial worthy people who enter celestial paradise that meaning that's not Hades or that's not hell they do not suffer a spiritual death in the celestial paradise now what we also learn from Joseph F Smith is this it says quote the righteous spirit that departs from this earth is assigned its place in the paradise of God. For while the body sleeps and decays, the spirit receives a new birth. To it, the portals of life are opened. It is born again into the presence of God. Close quote. So that's his description of what it's like to be born into paradise as righteous spirits. So word to the wise... <laughs> Do everything you can in your life to make sure you make it into celestial paradise because you don't want to go into spirit prison where you have all these banishments that uh, Joseph F. Smith referred to on the other hand. And so essentially, um, if you are in prison for whatever, at the time that you resurrect, at least to telestial or terrestrial conditions, uh, then you're going to not be spiritually dead. But, you know, it's also kind of a matter of degrees even because if you're resurrected to telestial, you have the spirit of the Holy Ghost, whereas if you're resurrected to terrestrial, um, you enjoy the full presence of the Son in addition to the presence of the Spirit. And so uh, they, these are matters of degree to a certain extent. Now, having focused a little bit on this concept of uh, Hades and hell and spiritual death, let's turn our attention to what it means for Christ to have the keys of death uh, as a physical death and define what that means. And of course, I think most of us recognize that it's the separation of the physical body and the spirit. And so sometimes we refer to this as a temporal death, which is a very good word because it basically means there is this temporary separation of the body and spirit, temporary in the sense that once the resurrection occurs, the body and the spirit will be reunited again. And so the, the temporal nature 
of death is that it really is temporary, okay? Because the grave has to deliver up its captive bodies at the time of the resurrection. And so when that happens, the bodies in the grave come up, they reunite with the spirits that are in hell because of the exercise of Christ's keys over both of these things, and one gets restored to the other. So the resurrection redeems people both from a physical and a spiritual death. And so we have in the Doctrine and Covenants a definition of what a soul is, and it's defined as the spirit and the body being the soul of man, and the resurrection from the dead is then the redemption of the soul. So the soul is these two separate bodies born of two different sets of parents. On the one hand, you have the physical parents of our mortal bodies, which are flesh and blood, and then you have our heavenly parents, who are the parents of our immortal spirits, and because they are resurrected parents, um, and, and give life to a spirit body, these spirit bodies are not subject to death. So spirits don't die once they have been born of a, our heavenly parentage. And so a spirit is capable of life and existence outside the physical body, whereas the physical body cannot live without its inward spirit. And we find this reflected in James 2.26, where it says, quote, the body without the spirit is dead, close quote. So it makes it kind of simple. Now, with regard to Christ's exercise of the keys of hell and death uh, as the second coming, there are at least three different times when these keys are going to be exercised. And so first of all, we have in Revelation 9 a description of the first woe. And this is when Christ is going to exercise his keys to open the bottomless pit. And so in that particular chapter, you'll find a specific reference to the key of the bottomless pit. Lucifer does not hold and exercise that key. It's the Savior, and by potentially Michael, uh, if he delegates that key, that opens the key to the bottomless pit, which then unleashes all of these unembodied and disembodied spirit sons of perdition so that they kind of run loose and create lots of havoc uh, here upon the earth. And we will get to that in the future in a podcast. But this is one of three occasions when we're going to see Christ exercising the keys of hell and death. So you don't only think of this concept of keys and the use of keys in the sense that I'm going to die in individually, I'm going to be resurrected individually, and, and that's Christ's exercise of the keys of hell and death. It's a much more broad concept and principle than simply our own life and death and our existence in, in this post-mortal spirit world. So the first one I mentioned that's different from that is, of course, in Revelation 9, the first woe. Then the second time is in Revelation chapter 16, which deals with the third woe. And at the time of the third woe, Christ will exercise the same keys of hell and death to basically take all of these uh, disembodied sons of perdition, unembodied sons of perdition, and we're going to lock them up. Okay? And in the case of disembodied sons of perdition, in Revelation 19.20, we're told that they will be cast into the lake of fire permanently. They never get to come out again. And that's the exercise of Christ's power of uh, hell and death because of the keys that he holds. 
Now, with regard to the unembodied sons of perdition, these are described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where we learn that Christ uh, will exercise his key and relegate them into the bottomless pit for a period of 1,000 years. Eventually, they get loosed again, another exercise of keys. Um, and uh, we have the little season before the final end of the earth, all right? So th that's another instance of the exercise of Christ's keys over hell and death. And finally, at the dawn of the second coming, we have Christ exercising his keys to resume the morning of the first resurrection of exaltation-worthy saints, beginning with the two witnesses, as I mentioned before, from Revelation chapter 11. And of course, the later stages of the resurrection are going to follow after the second coming, uh, again, through the exercise of Christ's keys over hell and death. He controls these things and dictates who gets to come forth when by the exercise of his keys. Now, I want to just kind of conclude uh, this podcast talking about something that I thought about after I did the podcast last week, but it applies to some of the things we've talked about in this podcast today. And, and you recall in the podcast from last week in Revelation 1-9, it talks about John uh, being a brother in tribulation with the saints in his day, and by like character, I think a brother in tribulation with us today as well. Um, and this week we've talked a little bit about in Revelation 1.17 where Christ raised up his uh, beloved disciple John and tells him, fear not. And I think the two are related, that as we face trials um, and we sometimes fall, the Savior is always there to pick us up with the words, fear not. Now sometimes it might seem a little bit of an impossible task as we go galloping into the the first woe when all of these uh, evil spirits are loosed on the earth and the second woe of Armageddon, the third woe, I mean, they just, the woes just uh, go on and on. Um, and, and we concern ourselves and, and sometimes it's almost impossible not to fear when we start learning about the kinds of things that we're going to be called on to endure. And so I got to thinking a little bit about this concept. What do, you, what do you say to the world, to people, to members of the church, to members of your family, those who uh, have trials and struggles, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever the case might be? What do you say to these people when they face these seemingly impossible odds? How do we get through it and uh, really have faith in the words of the Savior when he tells us, fear not because he's going to raise us up and he ultimately will but it's it's a little bit hard to to take that on faith sometimes i know and so i it occurred to me that you need to understand the story of camphella and then i think you can appreciate how you in fact can go forward in faith in the savior that he does have the power to raise you up that you can overcome tribulations and seemingly impossible odds. That's the story of Camphella. Now, who is Camphella? Well, Camphella, it turns out, is the richest standard bred pacing horse of all time. <laughs> you probably weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> so, 
I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this horse and then I'm going to tell you what I have some personal uh, dealings uh, with this horse in a in a certain indirect way but Camfella uh, is a was a great standard bred pacing horse uh, he's probably the greatest pacing horse of all times he had more than two plus million dollars in winnings now when you're talking about standard bred horses you're talking not about these thoroughbreds that run in like the Kentucky Derby the standard bred horses are those that pull the little buggies and they they have to pace they can't gallop or or run full out they have to basically pace they're trotters all right um, and so uh, Camfella was a stallion after he had a very successful racing career he sired 1002 foals who earned a combined total of more than $106.7 million in prize money. So if you want to know more about Camfella and this remarkable horse, you should check him out on Wikipedia. Just type in Camfella and give you all the details and statistics on uh, this great horse. Now, I have information about the horse um, that you won't find on Wikipedia because I have a personal interest in this horse because I represented a man by the name of Ed Friedberg who was a 25% owner of Camfella at the time that he was syndicated. So what happens when these uh, stallions uh, become very successful and they're going to then become breeding horses, uh, typically what they will do is they will syndicate them and they'll sell off shares of the horse. And Ed Friedberg owned a 25% stake in Camfella. Well, Ed became my client in a state tax case that I tried in San Francisco a number of years ago <clears throat> and what the case involved was uh, Ed had uh, been breeding horses for you know 20 plus years and uh, during the time that he owned these horses he had a, a series of things that kind of set him back and you know I'm not getting into all the details but the, the long and short of it is is that he had a string of losses in his business for 18 straight years and so the franchise tax board eventually got interested in it because he'd had this string of losses. And so what they wanted to come in and do is they audited him and said, we think this horse business isn't really a business. We think it's a hobby. And because it's a hobby and you can't deduct losses in a hobby, we're going to take back all your deductions. Short answer, you owe us a whole lot of money for 18 years. Well, they couldn't go back the full 18, but for six years or something like that. And so, uh, so this is the case that I was hired to, uh, to try this case to prove that Ed Friedberg's business was not a hobby, it was an actual business. And Ed, Camfella plays into this because Ed owned him, this horse, during the time that they were trying to make Ed uh, change the status of his business into a hobby and so Ed had to testify about why he had all these losses because essentially if you can explain that there are reasons business reasons for the existence of these losses that the franchise tax board can't recharacterize it they'll do their best to try and do it but ultimately you have this judge who gets to decide whether it's a business or whether it's a hobby and so that's our case and so Ed is going to testify about Cam Fella, that he had this 
5% ownership interested. Now, here's where the story starts to come into what I'm talking about, because Camfella, you think a, a magnificent animal like this that wins more than $2 million, his foals have earned more than $106 million. Uh, probably I should add that the breeding fee for just one colt for Camfella when he first started out as a stallion was $25,000 for one breeding and it probably as his foal started racing successfully and it turns out that Camfella could transmit into his foals the same characteristics of winning that he had in his situation as his foals did greater successful things than Camfella was a successful stud and his breeding fees then went up I think they were like 40,000 for a breeding, just to breed one horse. Uh, that's what people would have to pay to uh, get the sperm from Camfella. So Ed is testifying about this horse and what he was like. The judge took a particular interest in it because it's an interesting case. And so what Ed described is that Camfella was actually not the biggest or strongest horse uh, in the standard bred population. And in fact, his confirmation was not even particularly great either. It, it was good, um, but, but not perfect. And what the confirmation refers to, and distinguish that from confirmation, this is conformation. It's the way that the horse stands. It's the way that he trots. It's does he have angles um, in the way that his hooves hit the ground. Um, you, you just have to have this perfect conformation in order to gain the highest speeds. It's similar to me. Uh, I'm kind of bow-legged, uh, you know, big confession time here. And, uh, and so I don't have very great confirmation as, as horse flesh would go because I'm bow-legged. Um, meaning if I put my feet together, I've got a space between my knees, right? Uh, probably from riding too many horses as a kid. Um, and another interesting fact about um, Camfella was he was a ridgling, uh, which means that he only had one testicle. <laughs> Probably the first time you've ever heard that word in a uh, spiritually based podcast, I know. But they're big questions. Number one, could he even be a successful stud because of this condition? And also, would it affect his ability to race? And so Camfella was not a unique specimen. He wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the strongest, his conformation wasn't the best, he had other issues with his physical prowess that suggested he would not be a great horse, he would not be the magnificent horse that he turned out to be. And so what was it that, uh, that caused Camfella to win all these races? And this is what Ed is describing in his testimony during this tax court trial and the judge was kind of getting into it asking questions i mean i was the one that's supposed to be asking the questions ed is telling the story from the stand but the judge starts asking all these questions too and so ed describes the the, the thing that made camfella this unstoppable racehorse was because if camfella saw that another horse was trying to move ahead of him, there was just something almost instinctive about Camfella, and he had this unconquerable unwillingness to let people pass him. Uh, and it's something that's not in his physical prowess, it was in his heart. It was it's some inherent quality that you could never um, 
find or see by looking at the, the type of horse that he was. And, and I tell you this story because I think in a, in a very real sense, Campfella is a little bit like we are, um, particularly as we face tribulation and as our endurance is tested, as Satan tries to move ahead of us and, and take control of our lives. Um, and there's this test, we, we kind of got to be this Campfella that no, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to finish my race. I'm not going to allow Satan to overcome me. I will overcome. And that's this indomitable spirit that Canfella possessed as this great racehorse. And so we may not, each of us, be the strongest spiritually. Perhaps we're a little bit uh, spiritually bow-legged, <laughs> if I can use that term. We all feel that we have these weaknesses. We all feel like, I just can't go on. And yet the reality of it is what the Lord asks of us in these latter days is to have this heart within and this willingness. So we have to have a good heart and this unwillingness to let Satan overcome us. And this is expressed in the 64th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 34, where it says, Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind, close quote. And that kind of sums up Camphella. I mean, he had this heart and this spirit that just wouldn't allow him to lose. It wouldn't allow him to give up. It wouldn't allow the adversary that he was facing on the track to overcome him or to get ahead of him. And as a consequence, he became the greatest standard bred horse in the world. And... Uh, it was because of that indomitable spirit, and that can be all of us. Uh, we may, as I said, we might have our trials and our difficulties. We're, uh, you know, first blush, we might look a little bit like David, the, the ruddy lad that the Lord chose to be his king because he knew David's heart. Um, that's us, and that's how we get through tribulation. Um, and so, to conclude, I'm sure you're going to want to know what the outcome of the case was. And uh, the judge ultimately agreed that uh, the business was not a hobby, that uh, Mr. Freeberg could continue to claim his 18 years worth of deductions. <laughs> and so he won too. Uh, and he did it with alongside his great champion, Cam Fella. But anyway, by way of conclusion, I just want to... Uh, say that I pray for your own ability to endure. I pray that you might have this indomitable Camphella-like spirit and heart <clears throat> so that Satan can't overcome you. And so I thank you for listening, um, watching, subscribing, sharing with your friends. Uh, thanks to uh, Jenna Daly for the graphics. You know, I keep saying that I'm putting up these, these graphics. It's not really me, it's Jenna. I got a confession to make. So at any rate, thanks for that. Um, so next Saturday, um, we're going to have another uh, podcast. It'll cover Revelation 1, the last two verses, 19 and 20, in chapter 1, which is John's final charge to uh, write the vision. And, uh, and then we'll be moving on to uh, chapters 2 and 3 in the future. But thanks for being with me, and uh, I'll see you next week.